and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Thank you for joining us as we try to navigate the coronavirus crisis. What's its impact on human lives, on markets, on politics, in our hugely interconnected world that's so vulnerable to pandemics? We're going to dive into the geopolitical implications and what can be done to prevent such a pandemic in the future. And to help with this scary and all-encompassing issue, we're lucky to be joined by Nurit Eisenman from NPR, who's one of the most authoritative, reliable, and well-informed journalists on the issue of international health. Since the coronavirus entered our global vocabulary some weeks ago, the expansion of the infections is staggering. It's almost like a live ticker. And the global reach of the virus reminds us exactly of how connected the world is today. Tens of thousands are sick. Hundreds have died. Dozens of countries have infected patients from Malaysia to Germany, the U.S. and Italy to Sri Lanka. Times and many other news outlets publish interactive maps that update every hour. So there's news coming from everywhere. An entire cruise ship filled with individuals who have tested positive for the disease has been quarantined in Japan. There's hundreds of infected passengers and so are dozens of travelers and millions of passengers as well in airplanes from China. You know, and what, one of the most interesting parts of this story, Mooney, is that we've seen Chinese social media explode about the doctor who sounded the whistle about this deadly virus because he's dead himself and mistrust is growing in the streets of China's main cities. And I don't remember at least hearing my friends who are Chinese experts talk about the virulence and anger on social media against Chinese officials yeah, it's shocked everyone because these usually stone-faced Chinese leaders aren't used to this type of criticism. Scientists are rushing to find a vaccine and specialized hospitals to house the sick are built only in like two or three days. Oh, and good luck finding a face mask to protect yourself. Right now, those are in very, very short supply. It's amazing, Peter. The case has stretched the capacity of not only the Chinese government, but very powerful and widespread organizations such as the World Health Organization, who only recently acceded to call the coronavirus a global health emergency. Then there's questions about whether China delayed letting them in or was the WHO late to react. In any case, what's obvious with this crisis is that our world is really unprepared for surprises of this nature. And really, there is no amount of tech and connectivity that can control it. Their solutions, quarantines, travel restrictions, curfews have been around for centuries. There's really nothing new. I just wonder, can't we find better solutions? How to avoid and prevent something like this from happening? Even Ebola has not been eradicated years later. And SARS, which is essentially coronavirus parent, also originating in China, infected over 8,500 people and killed over 700 before it was contained. The biggest question now is how many victims will coronavirus claim it surpassed SARS already? Mooney, let's talk about beyond the medical victims and, and the people who are sick. Let's talk about the economic and political impact that's being felt all over the place. But first and foremost, in China, China spent 2019 continuing to flex and show its political muscle by expanding the Belt and Road Initiative or banning the broadcast of NBA games. I mean, China was really feeling strong. But in the past two weeks, China's central bank has been pumping over $242 billion into the financial system to prop up weakening growth. And amidst all this growing anger, President Xi Jinping virtually disappeared, disappeared for days on end as Chinese authorities 
resort to increasingly controversial actions to impose curfews on information and movement across the country, China remains almost completely isolated as airlines across the world cancel trips and businesses scramble to rewire complicated supply chains. And even outside of China, the world is uh, feeling all the effects. Across of Asia, weary travelers are canceling trips. Companies are taking really strong precautions. Tourist revenue is dropping from Indonesia to Thailand. Hyundai and other companies have suspended production in South Korea. Companies like Amazon, Sony, LG recently announced the cancellation of their participation in a very prominent electronics convention in Barcelona. Employees in Spain are wearing face masks when they're in Chinese companies. How long will this last? Who knows? So there's all kinds of forecasts, Peter. Experts from S&P Global predicted that it will run its course by April and end by May. And even though as of right now, financial markets look stable, the virus is spreading and so is mistrust. And many expect that the measures taken by the Chinese government will be insufficient. All this fading confidence could cause global demand to stall. And perhaps the most concerning consequences is that we have come from a pretty good run of world growth. Investors have become optimists as this starts to change. The, as the disease continues to spread, are we all going to become global pessimists? You know, one thing that nobody seems to be really able to address or want, maybe people don't want to address it, is why do these outbreaks keep happening in China? What is it about China? Now, I mean, no doubt part of the blame goes to China's government, which is always operating in secrecy and siloed information. I mean, everybody knows that's not the best way to combat a pandemic. Indeed, the back and forth about the poor doctor who was first arrested for breaking the news and, and then he passed away. And then, you know, it, it confirms all of this lack of transparency of the state and how the restricted flow of information is bad for controlling sicknesses. But beyond the government, Mooney, beyond that, is it the sheer size of the population that makes it more likely? I, I don't think so, because these epidemics don't seem to be happening in India. Is it the lack of prevention? Is it a slow reaction time? A lot of people are talking about this issue about the interaction of live animal markets within food markets and generally the causal relationship between animals and foods. I, I don't think anybody seems to know, but it's certainly something that at least I would love to hear. Why Why is China seem to be more often than not the epicenter of these epidemics? What we do know for sure is that a vaccine is maybe a year or two away. And until now, until then, there is very little that any government can do to contain this crisis beyond these primitive measures that are already being taken. And in the meantime, the scope of the long-term repercussion for China and the world are yet to be fully understood. Throughout the crisis, we have heard from one reporter who has provided consistent coverage and analysis of the crisis on NPR. And we're very grateful to very busy Nurith Eisenman for making time to talk to us today. She's the NPR's correspondent on global health and development, a former writer at the Washington Post, former editor of The New Republic and a Harvard grad. Nurith Eisenman, welcome to Altamar. Oh, glad to be here. You've been covering coronavirus almost daily since the outbreak began. Can we just start with the basics? What is your assessment of the scope of this threat? And is it being overblown or underreported? What worries you the most? Really, right now, this is an emergency in China. Um, the 
pretty much all of the cases are in China. It's true that there are several hundred outside of China, but that's a tiny number compared to the tens of thousands in China. Um, and uh, and we're still trying to get a sense of actually uh, how fast it's excel. You know, it's uh, spreading. Is it accelerating? We can talk about the reasons why that's hard to know in a moment. In terms of things that are worrisome, um, you know, still a lot of unknowns about exactly how lethal is it. Uh, another concern is that if it does spread to, let's say, countries in Africa that have less access to sophisticated healthcare, the lethality might actually go up because um, a lot of the cases that are surviving are surviving due to really intensive care in hospitals. And that that could be a real problem if it starts to spread to low resource countries. You've covered Ebola in person and um, you know reports are it's uh, Ebola is much more deadly, but also harder to get this disease kind of in reference using Ebola as a reference. Is, is it more contagious, less deadly or do we still not know for sure? Yeah, I mean, with the proviso that we don't fully know yet, and, and I do think we should talk about some of the reasons why we don't know all the answers yet. I mean, it does so far, the evidence that's emerged so far is that um, it is less with Ebola, you know, it's it seems to be easier to catch than Ebola in the sense that with Ebola, you know, you have to touch the fluids of someone who is in the later stage of the illness. They have more viral load. And um, in this case, it's a little bit more akin to the way the flu might spread. You know, someone sneezes on a surface and you touch those droplets and then, you know, you touch some mucous membrane of your own. In terms of how lethal it is, you know, the positive thing to say is that about 80% plus of cases, this is based on 17,000 cases that the WHO, the World Health Organization, was able to analyze the symptoms seem to be mild. And um, in terms of the death rate, it's about 2% of the confirmed cases have resulted in death. And the death rate may end up being substantially lower once they're able to test for people who might have contracted this virus and shown no symptoms at all, you know. So it might be substantially less lethal. But again, you know, there's a lot that we don't know, and maybe we should talk about about why. <laughs> yeah, well, let me let's let's talk about why. Why don't we know how how the mortality of this disease, and what else don't we know that we should know and probably will know, but too late. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges is that while China has been reporting daily the cases that that are confirmed. According to the World Health Organization, to which this information is imparted, they're often not including underlying information about the cases that is really key, such as, you know, when did that person develop symptoms? You know, how did they seem to get exposed? Uh, are they a healthcare worker? You know, and those those are the kinds of uh, underlying facts that you need to construct the epidemiological curve, you know, to see, like, what direction is this headed? Is it accelerating where is it spreading and how? So a lot of that underlying data is still not fully being transmitted. But Nareet, what one of the things that sort of, uh, you know, I, I as a civilian sort of pick up just from the press is that the Chinese citizens themselves don't seem to believe their government. I mean, there's huge amount of anger and disbelief. So I guess one question I have is, is there a problem with Chinese numbers, with with and, and are those believable? And is that something that the world can rely on? 
Yeah, it's it's very hard to tell. I mean, earlier on, there was some modeling that we're trying to, you know, that we're suggesting that based on the numbers that were showing up overseas, the underlying number of cases in China had to be much greater than what China was reporting. And then in China, there's definitely been a lot of concern expressed to the extent that it can be expressed. And then there's also been a lot of censorship since then about what seems to have been early on, just like a soft peddling of how, you know, of how much they knew about the fact that there was human to human transmission as opposed to just a, you know, a small collection of people who were infected directly in a, in a seafood and meat market. And the fact that several health workers, at least eight, uh, eight health workers in China and in Wuhan in the epicenter of the outbreak in various ways tried to spread word of what seemed to be these unusual pneumonia cases and then were brought in by police and sanctioned uh, early on. And then now, you know, there's there's been sort of a rehabilitation of them, but, uh, you know, by the Chinese authorities. But there, that has left just this sort of lingering question about how much has really been communicated and also concern that early on Chinese authorities didn't do enough to alert people in Wuhan. They might have been even they might have been possibly more communicative to the outside world than they were to people in Wuhan about the risk at the very earliest stage. So that's just sowed a lot of, of questioning and doubt about what's currently being reported. And I've heard you say that somehow you've put this in, and, and, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, you've made a juxtaposition between the flu and the coronavirus and sort of have wondered aloud whether, what you know, with so many people dying from the flu, why aren't, why aren't we getting as upset about the flu as we get about the coronavirus? And I think that's a that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is the flu, you know, seasonal influenza kills, you know, hundreds of thousands. You know, I mean, it's it's incredible, the numbers. Um, it's not so much a kind of a critique as much as just a trying to, you know, lay this out for people. Why why are we mobilizing so much, especially in the earliest phases of this outbreak? It's it's only been going on for two months, but still, it's there's, there's already a long history that, you know, of, of how it's changed. And the biggest thing is that it's new, you know, and... And so, number one, when you have a, a wholly new virus introduced in the human population, you don't know a lot of things about it, how it transmits, how lethal it is, really. And you certainly don't want to wait until you know for sure before you take precautions in case it really is going to be a problem. You know, everyone's the sort of nightmare that everyone lives with is the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed at least 50 million people worldwide, you know, so people are always worried about that kind of a situation. And then, you know, with the flu, if we could get rid of the flu, we would, right? I mean, you know, but it's it's endemic. It's just that that ship has sailed and we're just trying to combat the flu in a much more incremental way. When there's something new that's introduced, you know, there's a sense of, well, let's try to just quash it before it it can become uh, endemic. And there is a success story of doing that, for example, with, with SARS. So it's not a crazy notion to try. So you mentioned when there is something new that is introduced. And, you know, Mooney and I were wondering before, it often seems that the new thing being introduced, the new virus being introduced, emanates from China. Why is that? Why, why is China the epicenter of so much of this? I would hesitate to put it all on China. I, I can't tell you that I've done an analysis of like how many things have emanated specifically from China versus other places. But that said, I think I think it is interesting to explore some of what seems to have been at work in the case of this and and other viruses that have emanated from China. 
And there are a couple factors. Um, one is, and this is the, the case not just for China, but there are a number of countries that share these these features. And uh, one is you have like a an animal population, uh, some wild animal, it's often bats, um, that harbors a lot of viruses. The bat doesn't really affect the bat too much, but it's kind of in the bats. And there's, I'm you know, I've been doing some reporting on scientists that have been tracking how many coronaviruses are in bats, and it's quite a large number. You know, spoiler alert, this is just one of many. And then the thing that happens is either because people consume bats or because they're brought into contact with other wild animals that people then consume or bring into these live animal markets where they also have domesticated animals. There's this sort of this mingling of species. And that's sort of a way for viruses that are circulating in wild animals that humans normally wouldn't really be encountering to then have that jump into humans. And certainly this coronavirus has been found in bats in China. So, you know, that seems to be a possible mechanism. Although, again, one more thing that they don't really fully understand in this particular outbreak. But I'm sorry, how does the interaction between bats and humans work? So it could be a number of things, right? It could be it can be that the bat has the virus in it and the human comes into contact with the bat. Let's say there are some places where it's a delicacy. The bat is consumed, you know, and it goes directly from the bat to the human Another scenario is um, the bat is consumed and is brought into a marketplace or or the bat is is near some other wild animal which to which it gives the virus either in the marketplace or in the wild and then that animal is consumed in the market and the virus enters sort of jumps from this intermediate host for example with SARS it was civet cats that was the intermediate host from bats to civet cats and then people eating civet cats the civet cats are in the market they're getting it from from that intermediate host. Another thing that happens, there's it's not, nece- not necessarily the case in this particular instance, but another concern is always that um, you can have like the bats or the intermediate host has that virus and maybe it's not a virus that can easily infect humans, but that same animal is also infected with something that, in- that can infect humans, let's say an influenza. And then the genetic material gets swapped <laughs> in the body of the animal in the cells and suddenly you have a new virus that's kind of created that has all the features of you know this one virus that couldn't infect humans and now you have a virus you know but it also has the aspects that can infect humans and so again something new is introduced so essentially the bottom line of what i'm saying here is that situations where there's a lot of mixing of different kind of species many of them alive pooping you know liquids flowing people in contact, that is kind of rife for this kind of spread of viruses that wouldn't otherwise be entering the human population. So, Nur, after this terribly disturbing description, we are living in this very medically advanced world. And yet these explanations, both of the causes and the way this disease has been treated with you know, the same things as they did during the Spanish flu, probably curfews and quarantines and face masks. Doesn't this seem like in this world, there should be more responses, both in in preventing and in treating or trying to avoid contagion? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things with quarantines, I mean, the quarantines are controversial and the way that they're applied is very important and they can be applied in ways that are completely counterproductive and make people go underground or, you know, or harm people unnecessarily. So with that proviso, 
there is something we said for, you know, identifying cases, isolating people so that they can't spread it to others. That is kind of tried and true. It's true that it dates back to, you know, I was looking at the history of quarantines. It dates back to the Bible, Hippocrates, you know, I think the word comes from 1370s Venice, the quarantinario. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Peter can tell us the Italian side of that. It's, it's the 40 days that um, people had to be in quarantine when there was some plague in Venice, I think. So, Part of it is that it's tried and true. And then, of course, we also are living in this time of a lot of progress. It, it's interesting how quickly in this case they were able, to China's credit, to identify the virus, you know, communicate its genetic sequence, which has been very, very helpful in terms of then being able to find it in people. That's how they're testing and figuring out if people have been infected. And then I think it also does point to the need for more work. You know, I was talking to you about those markets and that research about what's in bats. And that's part of an effort that has been ongoing, but you know, perhaps more is warranted of trying to proactively identify, you know, what viruses are out there in the animal reservoir that, you know, could be a problem such that, you know, we can quickly respond to them and even have sort of some some amount of setup of like, you know, precursor vaccines that might work so we don't have to invent the wheel. And in fact, some of that work is why they were able to identify that this particular coronavirus was in, in uh, bats, because they had done that groundwork. So it was on the list. There's been some back and forth between finger pointing between the Chinese government and the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization came in too late, that China didn't let them in. What is uh, WHO's role in the crisis right now? I mean, I wouldn't say finger pointing. What's, what's really stood out to me is just how complementary uh, the WHO and in particular the De Director General uh, Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus has been towards China. I mean, on the one hand, you can imagine that he's got to be diplomatic, right? I mean, everything with the WHO is a function of it's by, you know, the consent of sovereign nations. Um, he can't force any country to do anything and he's desperately needs China's cooperation. But that said, uh, so so you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be critical of China, but it's really been noticeable early on, you know, statements from him about how much they were getting information from China, you know, no intimation of a problem. Uh, let's see what else. Like also, you know, they've been asked about whether he's been asked whether he had any messages for people in Wuhan. And even though the World Health Organization very early on seemed to sort of in a very diplomatic way indicate that they didn't think that the kind of transportation lockdown uh, that was imposed on Wuhan was based on, you know, uh, rational science-based evidence. In most recently, you know, he's been totally complimentary, uh, you know, to, to China on that regard in the sense of just saying like, thanks to the people of Wuhan, you're doing what needs to be done. I'm sorry that you're going through this, but it, it's what needs to be done. Very complimentary of Xi Jinping, just saying, you know, that he's leading the charge and how involved he is, completely poo-pooing the notion that there might be, you know, additional cases or that cases were circulating beforehand. So just really um, kind of bending over backwards to be complimentary, which is interesting. I love how you ended that. Um <laughs> Look, I, I know Nurid, you're not an economist, but I just I just wanted to know, I wanted to ask you, you know, financial markets, even though this is taken over the headlines, financial markets really haven't dropped, or at least they haven't dropped yet. And 
but supply chains are affected. Air travel has been cut off. Tourism, not only to and from China to other countries, but certainly to a number of other Asian countries is affected. And you know, there seems to be a lot of economic costs. And I guess one is I'd ask you about that, but I've also was very interested to see that Standard & Poor's was saying that the crisis is going to be over by May. Do, do you think that's right? I mean, I really don't feel like I have enough information to hazard a prediction at this point. I just think it's it's dangerous to make that kind of prediction at this stage, you know? And why do you think they did it? I, you know, I can't speak for them. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I, I can't, I didn't, I haven't seen their particular analysis of why they've done that. You know, I just, it, that's hard for me to answer, honestly. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's really hard to know. It's just hard to know. I mean, it's, you know, Wuhan, right now there's like, the numbers are still coming out fast out of Wuhan, although again, we don't know how much of that is new infections or just confirmation of existing cases. That alone is a city of 11 million people. And, um, you know, a lot of them left, I think at least 5 million appear to have left just before the shutdown of transportation. Um, we're now starting to see the ramp up, you know, the, the whole country was kind of more on a holiday footing with the Lunar New Year. That's over now. It's just kind of ramping up more fully. I just think there's it, it's just hard to know. I don't feel like we have enough information to really be able to chart a trajectory yet. I really just don't. Since you started covering this, do you feel that there begins to be any encouraging news on the horizon or are we still in the thick of things? Well, I mean, I, look, I think it's just encouraging, for example, what I said about the 83% of cases having mild symptoms the death rate, you know, even not taking into account the likely significant numbers of people who get this and don't show any symptoms, you know, that that often happens, being at sort of 1%, maybe 2%. Um, so presumably, it might end up being much lower. So those are the things I think that are, that are hopeful. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, a, there is certainly going to be a lot of mobilizing around the science. And um, it certainly has like the attention of of world-class people. And there's uh, a lot of energy being put into moving quickly. So that gives me hope. I don't mean to be all doom and gloom here. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me ask you a couple of questions about the future, which I it gives you an opportunity to be optimistic and upbeat if you want to, since you were worried yeah. about doom and gloom. So, I mean, <laughs> so how, how does the world deal in five or 10 years with pandemics like this. I mean, they do seem to be coming more often, more fast and furious. And so yeah. how, how, how does the world deal? And I guess, is there any country that really stands out in your mind as a sort of really best practice example of, of who does this well? I can't sort of speak to like one country that I would point to just offhand, but which isn't to say there isn't one out there, but I just, you know, I tend to focus so heavily on the United States' preparedness and then, you know, and then preparedness in, in, really low resourced countries. I think that in terms of the the answer of, you know, how do we prepare it? It seems like the most important thing is to just recognize that these are not fluke events. Like this is entirely predictable that this sort of thing should happen. You know, we have we have a situation where there are these viruses that circulate in animals that we are because of climate change, because of, you know, the way that these markets work, the way that, you know, there's so much more travel in the world, uh, that this kind of mode of transmission of jumping from a wild animal into a human and then, you know, in a place where people then will travel and spread it further, 
this is sort of the world we live in now, you know, and to the extent that we can just sort of accept that that's how it is and then just, you know, really be looking for what are the potential viruses out there? What are kind of what's the architecture of things that we can prepare that, you know, we, we sort of have ready made, you know, kind of almost complete vaccines and almost complete therapies that we can kind of then fit to whatever emerges that level that kind of preparedness and then again just really beefing up preparedness in the poorest countries because i think that doesn't get enough attention of how much of a threat this this is really more than anything to countries that already have weak health systems so that that i think if if we focus on that um on all of those things then we'll be in better shape and some of that has been happening and, and arguably a lot more needs to be happening Nareet Eisenman, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It was my pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Peter, Nareet was incredibly thorough in her evaluation of what the health repercussions are and kind of the outlook of this virus worldwide in and out of China. But I think there's another aspect that we touched on briefly, which is what's going to happen to the world economy. I have so many questions about tourism in Asia, about air travel, about all these you know conventions that are being canceled, financial markets holding on still precariously. Is the other shoe really going to drop in the next couple of weeks or months? Well, I, I have two thoughts on that, Mooney. One is I agree with you, and the other one is I don't agree with you. Of I know, course, I know, I know that <laughs> I know that sounds uh, a little schizophrenic, but let me take on the I agree with you. I'm I'm uh, talked to a number of friends of mine in New York today, and we're in end of quarter reporting season, and a lot of companies are really freaking out about the guidance that they are about to give to analysts and shareholders because they don't know, and that's one of the things. That is so scary about what Nurit, who is a real expert in this, transmitted here is how much we don't know. And so, you know, people need to give guidance about what's going to happen to their companies. And in particular, people are very freaked out about supply chains, which China is so, so integrated in, and they really don't know what to say. And so that leads me to the part that I don't agree with you with, which is there really is just a ton of unknowns here that could lead this to be uh, the huge doom and gloom story of, of 2020, but it also could lead uh, this thing to disappear as quickly as SARS ended up disappearing nearly 10 years ago. So with that, we leave you. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Altamar. 